When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Is there such a thing as African-American English? African-American English is actually called Ebonics. So yeah, it does exist. What are some features that distinguish it as a language, as a dialect? Uh, it's a lot of code words, you know, things that only African-Americans understand, so... So I wouldn't understand then? Probably not, you know? I'd probably have to explain after everything I say. (laughs) From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number four, titled... Jumpin' Salty in the O, wherein we discuss the vernacular wrapped in a dialect inside a language that some call Ebonics. Mike, we're recording this before the Academy Awards, and one of the big contenders is the movie The Help, adapted from a book, and it's up for Best Picture, among other Oscars, and it may or may not win, but did create something of a sensation and a whole mess of controversy over some of the language within the film. Before the movie even came out, the book and the author, Catherine Stockett, sparked a kind of debate, which I think was very succinctly summed up by a woman named Teresa Wiltz. She's the senior editor of Slate's sister publication, The Root. She posed the question last summer, can a white woman... Catherine Stockett, the author, is white. Can a white woman truly tell the stories of black women using old-school Ebonics? Should it matter? So many people wondered whether Catherine Stockett got the speech patterns of her black characters right. Some people questioned whether she had the authority to render them in the first place. And still other people were wondering, what is this speech pattern? I saw in a forum on wordreference.com Somebody excerpted a series of passages from the help and asked, what is this language called? Is it politically correct to call it Ebonics? Somebody responded that Ebonics was, quote, an artificial dialect slash language. And you can see where someone might uh, suspect that. It sort of does have the whiff of uh, Kwanzaa, you know, kind of an invented holiday built to suit a whole bunch of uh, different requirements. But Ebonics isn't linguistic Kwanzaa, is it, Mike? Well, the term Ebonics was coined in the 1970s by an African-American psychologist named Robert Williams. It means simply black sounds. So, sure, the term is contrived, but what it's describing is not. The problem I think many people have with Ebonics 
is they don't really understand what it is. Is it a language? Is it a dialect? Is it broken English? What does any of that even mean? Yeah, quick follow-up, Mike. Is it a language? Is it a dialect? Is it broken English? What is it? Let's first remember what happened the last time, which was, you know, the first time and the last time we had a kind of national conversation about African-American English. This was back in 1996 when in Oakland, California, the Board of Education passed a resolution affirming what they said had already been recognized by linguists, that there is such a thing as an African-American language distinct from standard English. And the Board of Education there resolved to come up with a new academic program, and I'll quote directly from their resolution, a program for imparting instruction to African-American students in their primary language for the combined purposes of maintaining the legitimacy and richness of such language and to facilitate their acquisition and mastery of English language skills. I remember this vividly. I mean, I think I remember it vividly. What I recall is that when the council passed this resolution, the rest of America, mostly white America, freaked out on the grounds that this was just more paternalistic catering to the underclass that was going to keep that very underclass from ever getting into the mainstream of American life. And they just wigged. Yeah, if you read contemporary media accounts, you get a sense of just how huge a controversy it was, headline news. And I managed to dig up some comments by politicians at the time, including Mario Cuomo. Remember, Cuomo was no longer governor of New York, but he was still a very outspoken voice in the Democratic Party, in the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. And here's what he said. It is a lowering of the bar. It is a surrender saying, well, you know, the best we can do is this inadequate new language that won't be sufficient to really educate a person for this current competitive environment. So it's wrong. Another comment I found was by Joseph Lieberman, also a Democrat at the time. He's since become an independent. Here's what he said in 1996. It is a teaching down instead of a raising up. You know, part of uh, the problems in our society are a failure to draw lines and say that some behavior is acceptable, some is not. The same is true of language and education. Some kinds of language are unacceptable. Some are acceptable and preferable. So these statements were entirely representative of the sort of unfortunate, I would say, level of discourse around this issue at the time, not just by white politicians, but also by some African Americans. For example, the poet Maya Angelou was quoted in a newspaper at the time saying, I'm incensed. The very idea that African American language is a language separate and apart is very threatening because it can encourage young men and women not to learn standard English. Jesse Jackson said that in Oakland, quote, Madness has erupted over making slang talk a second language. You don't have to go to school, he said, to learn to talk garbage. So uh, what Jesse Jackson has to say is interesting on two counts. The first is that uh, Jackson, when he found it politically convenient or socially, was perfectly capable of sort of slouching back into non-standard English, the black vernacular. But apart from that, uh, he and Angelou and Cuomo and Lieberman, whatever you think about their take on standard English, they were reacting 
as I understand it, to something that the Oakland School Board never did. They never suggested that their curriculum should be taught in black English as a substitute for standard English. Yeah, that's more or less correct. The resolution was widely misinterpreted, according to members of the school board, which then amended the resolution a few weeks later to make clearer exactly what they were proposing, which was essentially this, to acknowledge that many African-American kids came to school speaking a language, whatever you wish to call it, that was not standard English, and to use the language those kids were speaking in the classroom as a way to transition them. That's one of the words they added in the amended version, transition them to English. So they will use the vernacular in teaching kids how to go beyond the vernacular and talk standard English. Well, they probably wouldn't say vernacular, and I don't think they would say go beyond. They would say transition from one language to another, which implies there's a kind of bilingual education going on, which means, because of various federal funding for such programs, that the Senate got involved. An appropriations subcommittee held a two-hour hearing, in part to determine in the words of Arlen Specter, who led the hearing, whether Ebonics was a language, a dialect, or vernacular speech. Okay, so here's my seemingly absurd metaphor of the day. Asking whether Ebonics is a dialect or a language is sort of like asking whether a squash is a fruit or a vegetable. For one thing, it's both. But more to the point, vegetable isn't even a strictly defined biological term, language, dialect, vernacular, as if even among linguists, any of those terms are strictly defined. They're just not. Which is why in the Oakland School Board resolution, you see them point out that Ebonics is sometimes called pan-African communication behaviors, sometimes called African language systems. There's a linguist at North Carolina State University who's been studying African-American speech patterns for 40 years. His name is Walter Wolfram, and he told me that there's been at least half a dozen preferred terms among his colleagues in that time. Here's Wolfram. It was originally called non-standard Negro dialect, then it was called Black English, then it was called vernacular Black English, and then it was called Ebonics, and then it was called African American English, and then vernacular African American English, then it went back to Ebonics, and now it's either called Ebonics, African American English, or African American language. Now, why do some people call it language and some people call it English? Calling something a language has more status, and the fact of the matter is, whether something is a dialect or a language turns out to be a highly political determination. A language is a dialect that has an army. Very good line, and I appreciate your uh, invocation of the squash analogy, Uh, but surely there is a difference between a dialect, which is deemed a uh, kind of bastardization of pure language, and a language itself with a set of rules and vocabulary and, and syntax, grammar, and so forth. A couple of things. First of all, you seem to be assuming that African-American English does not have a set of rules and grammar all its own, and we'll get to that in a minute. But also, think about the words you're using, Bob. Bastardization, pure... They 
I think, reveal a kind of personal bias about what's a language and what's a dialect and what's worthy. There's a really good example, I think, that gets to the point that Wolfram makes when he says a language is a dialect with an army. Think about Cantonese, which is sometimes referred to as a variety or dialect of Chinese, even though it's largely unintelligible to a Mandarin speaker. Norwegian and Swedish, on the other hand, have national political borders around them, elevating their status in a sense, and those two languages are largely mutually intelligible. So there's something called the principle of linguistic subordination, which is, you know, more or less what it sounds like. If a people are socially subordinated, then their language will almost always be as well. And some would say that's a part, at least, of what African-American English is struggling against. All right, I take your point, and I stand, you know, as usual, humiliated. But it almost hardly seems to be the point when we're talking about Ebonics, because Ebonics is so widely regarded, including by, you know, Jesse Jackson as a garbage dialect, that it is not just different from but less than standard English. Does it have merit as a standalone tongue? So Wolfram says that one thing all languages have in common is a system of rules that undergird the conveying of meaning. That doesn't mean that you can't break the rules. It doesn't mean that the rules don't change or even that the rules are written down somewhere. I mean, there are about 6,000 or so languages currently spoken on the planet. Only about 200 plus of them are written. That doesn't mean that the rest don't have a set of overarching rules. African-American English has what Wolfram calls a precise and consistent pattern. That's indisputable, he says one that's often distinct from standard English. Here's Wolfram again with an example. So, for example, if you say something like, my ears be itching, it means, okay, my ears are habitually itching. So it refers to habitual action. Now, if we were saying the same thing, in standard English, we would have to say something like, my ears usually itch. So we have to do it with an adverb. People hear it, they think, oh, that's just a non-standard English form. But the fact of the matter is that that form has a highly precise and consistent pattern and has a meaning that separates it from the standard English forms as well. Now, this gets a little awkward, Mike, because we're, we're getting into a realm where the very constructions we're describing are often invoked as caricatures mm-hmm. to kind of ridicule the speakers and all of black culture at the same time. Uh, in a very Amos and Andy way. But I guess the point of this is that there's there's nothing inherently ridiculous about these constructions you're describing. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that's the principle of linguistic subordination at work. Instead of taking the time to understand and celebrate this linguistic diversity in our midst, we simply mock it. And, you know, it's interesting that some people who have historically celebrated African-American English are fiction writers because, well, you know, if you create characters and you want to respect them, then you have to portray accurately the way they talk. In the early 1980s, Toni Morrison referred to the, quote, five different present tenses of African-American English. A linguist named John Rickford at Stanford 
and others have since codified many tenses, including the five that Morrison was most likely referring to, and I'll quickly run through those five using Rickford's nomenclature. So you have the present progressive, she talking, which means in standard English, she is talking. The present habitual progressive, she be talking, which means she is usually talking. That's like the example that Wolfram cited. The present intensive habitual progressive, she be steady talking, which means she is usually talking in an intensive, sustained manner. The present perfect progressive, she been talking, which means she has been talking. And the present perfect progressive with remote inception, she been talking, stress on the been, which means she has been talking for a long time and she still is talking. So as John Rickford points out, if you say something like, she been married, it means she has been married for a while and still is. And yet, when he put that statement to 25 white people and 25 African Americans, while 23 of the African Americans understood the woman to still be married, only eight of the white people did. The point being, there is a precise and consistent pattern at work here, if you know it. So where did it come from? I mean, if you go back to slave life, these forced immigrants from various parts of Africa with very different native tongues were suddenly prevailed upon to speak English. And, you know, apart from some Southern dialect, they were confronted with standard English. So whence Ebonics? This is an area where there is some considerable disagreement. For example, one theory notes that African-American English has elements in common with certain colonial dialects of Irish and English immigrants. The habitual bee, for example. Many Irish and English were indentured workers and plantation overseers and, according to this theory, would have had sustained contact with black slaves who may have adopted some of these speech patterns. According to another theory, black slaves developed a pidgin English in the Caribbean and in the South that later evolved into African-American English. Walter Wolfram favors a third theory and believes that African-American English incorporated elements of some of the African languages that many slaves spoke. The absence of the B form, as in something like he ugly or she nice, is attributable to that original context situation. In pronunciation, the absence of certain final consonants, such as best for best, is something that would be derived from the contact between African languages and English. So there are some aspects of African-American English that go back to its ancestral past. And of course, there are things that have developed over the 20th century that have made African-American English much more distinct than it may have been 100 years ago. Wolfram points out that what is particularly interesting about the way African-American English has evolved over the 20th century is the way in which it's been influenced by social forces. He says that 100 years ago, African-American English was not tied very strongly at all to ethnic identity, and that that has changed dramatically. He told me about a study that attempted to tease out the pejorative view among some African-American kids towards the notion of acting white. And they found that the number one attribute of acting white was speaking white, 
talking white. And that sort of identity factor makes choices about language and speaking in a way that's discernibly African-American a much more complex personal and social kind of decision, which makes teaching standard English not simply a matter of learning a variety, but a matter to an African-American young person of choosing an identity that may be dissociated from the community where uh, he or she was raised and with which they identify. Pedagogically, how does one approach that then? Well, pedagogically, I think the way we need to approach it is to admit the truth about dialects, that in certain contexts, speaking African-American vernacular has clear advantages. In other contexts, it has clear limitations. We need to get to a position where we're not simply saying you need to talk right, but saying you need to be sensitive to the different situations in which language is used and how you may be perceived in those different situations. What then do we have to say to those who continue to call it lazy grammar and inexcusable for its incorrectness? Look, education is supposed to be targeted towards truth about things. The myths that we have about language differences, including African-American English, are akin to a modern geophysicist saying that the planet Earth is flat. To say that someone has no grammar when they have this highly complex grammar is a continuing tolerated form of discrimination in our society. (laughs) Tolerated discrimination. That's also very well phrased by Wolfram. And in this case, unfortunately, the tolerated discrimination was not just in the white world, but among the likes of Jesse Jackson and Maya Angelou, which makes me wonder how this all played out way back when, when the Ebonics issue was uh, such a hot button in Oakland, California. Well, I think it was this tolerated form of discrimination that the Oakland School Board was attempting to address in its resolution. And, you know, Jesse Jackson had something of a change of heart. It was just a week or two after he referred to African-American English as talking garbage that he met with members of the school board in Oakland and then gave a press conference. And I'll play just a little bit of that press conference and you can hear for yourself what he had to say. If our youth hear and speak in one language pattern and go to school and they are taught in another language pattern, there is the cultural conflict of having to unlearn the language they heard and spoke, learn standard American English, which is the goal, thus that's something called the transition. So you hear Jackson invoking the word transition, which, as I mentioned, the school board adopted in its amended resolution. And you said that you remembered the controversy, but I guess you don't remember how it ended up playing out. I, I would imagine most people don't remember that. No, you know, you remember the story, you don't remember the correction. Right. Uh, what was the correction? First of all, Peter King, a Republican representative from New York, from Long Island. The Peter King, the, the same one who today is warning us every 20 minutes about the uh, threat of uh, Muslim life and Sharia law in our, in our society, that, that Peter King? Same Peter King, yeah. He introduced a resolution in the House that would prohibit federal funds for programs involving Ebonics. Richard Riley, who was the Secretary of Education under Clinton, 
said effectively, don't worry, federal funds for bilingual education will not be spent on Ebonics. As we mentioned earlier, the Senate held a hearing, and the very first person to speak after Arlen Specter's opening remarks was a one-term Republican senator from North Carolina named Locke Faircloth. And here was his, uh, I guess what I would characterize as less than enlightened opinion. And I, I simply want to say that, that I think Ebonics is absurd. This is a political correctness that simply has gone out of control. Next up at the hearing was Representative Maxine Waters, who was chair of the Congressional Black Caucus at the time. Here's a bit of what she had to say. Children continue to come to school day in and day out with these different language patterns, and it's a problem. We should commend the Oakland School District for finally saying to everybody, let's recognize that this is happening. Many linguists have stated that Oakland's decision is credible, it is rational, and a potentially effective way to improve the academic standard of its students. After Maxine Waters, there were members of the school board who spoke in defense of their resolution. Robert Williams, the man who coined the word Ebonics, spoke, as did a number of linguists, most notably William Labov, who is sometimes referred to as the father of modern sociolinguistics. He stated emphatically that Ebonics was not simply slang, but rather, and I'll quote directly from him, rather a well-formed set of rules of pronunciation and grammar that's capable of conveying complex logic and reasoning. He also said, which I found very interesting, that African-American English was more different from standard English than any other dialect spoken in continental North America. And when all was said and done at the hearing, Arlen Specter sort of summed up by stating that the essential debate and difference of opinion was over whether Ebonics was an effective bridge to teaching standard English or whether it was simply a distraction. Fast forward to May of 1997, and here's the opening sentence. Wait, of an, hold it. Okay, no, go ahead. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Foley artist. Here's the opening sentence of an article in the New York Times. Quote, four months after Oakland, California became the nation's first school district to declare that blacks speak a separate language called Ebonics, the Oakland Schools Task Force studying the subject has come up with final recommendations in a report that does not mention Ebonics at all. The piece went on to quote the school board president, who said that the task force was probably trying to steer clear of any indication that they were going for bilingual funds and that, quote, it may have also been an emotional decision. I think they took so much ribbing for this, they may have just backed down. And, you know, Wolfram told me that he thinks that if this debate were to take place today, that it would probably play out in a very similar way, and that most likely 100 years after the Oakland Resolution will still be trying to get people to understand what African American English is. Yeah, but the racists will be in uh, hovercraft. <laughs> Can't wait for those flying cars. Can't wait. Check it. My weed smoke is my lot. A Kia Coke is a pie. When I'm lifted, I'm high. With new clothes on, I'm fly. Cars, whips, and sneakers is kicks. Money is chips. Movies is flicks. Also, crib.
Samson's homes, Jackson's payphones, cocaine is nose candy, cigarettes is bones. Uh, a radio is a box, a razor blade. So here's today's coda. I want to emphasize what is probably really obvious that we all have our own individual relationship with and interpretation of language. I know that sounds totally absurdly self-evident, but I think it's worth saying because, you know, a conversation like the one that we've been having gets really tangled up, maybe even necessarily tangled up, but nevertheless tangled with some overgeneralizations. And I want to play several minutes of a conversation I had with Teresa Wiltz, who I quoted earlier. Her piece in The Root was in part what led to this discussion about Ebonics, and I found out only after talking to her that she kind of hates the word. It just sounds like this crazy made-up name, which it is. I mean, all words are just, you know, sounds that we make up, but it just sounds like something out of an SNL skit to me, you know, hooked on Ebonics. You know, it's just this kind of visceral reaction I have to it. But the question that you posed in your piece on The Root last summer was, can a white woman truly tell the stories of black women using old school Ebonics? You used the word. I did. I did. And I think because it has become a shorthand, so it's a way to kind of conjure an image of a particular way of speaking quickly. So even though I don't particularly care for it as a word and try not to use it myself, you know, it is out there. And as a writer, you know, you use the tools that you have to convey what you're trying to talk about. Is there a term that you prefer? Probably black English. And you grew up speaking standard English and only standard English. You don't count yourself as fluent in black English. Growing up, did you take a pejorative view of black English? Um, It's kind of funny. I grew up part of the time in New York and part of the time in Atlanta. And when I was 12, we moved to Atlanta. And um, I'd always gone to private schools. I wanted very much to go to public schools. And my parents relented and let me go to a primarily black seventh grade in Atlanta. So, you know, seventh grade is a fraught year for anyone. And then if you're a skinny, you know, yet to hit puberty kid coming in with a New York accent, you're just a target. So, I mean, I... So I tried to, you know, I remember coming home and trying to drop my G's and use double negatives and everything. And my parents just had a fit. They were just like, we don't speak that way in this house and you're not going to speak that way either. So, I mean, it was something I tried on like kids do. They try on a persona. They try on different way of speaking and different way of dressing. And so that was something I tried to do, but it certainly wasn't authentic. It didn't fit. It didn't fit. But having said that, you know, and I've also been told all my life I sound like a white girl, whatever that is. I mean, I sound like me. But having said that, I mean, I think about, I mean, Obama, we're the same generation, same age group. And I think a lot of middle class, upper middle class, college educated, professional black folks do what he does. So he has a standard way of speaking. He generally speaks standard English. But if he's around other black people, he's going to kind of slow down his speech a little bit. He's going to drop some G's. And I think a lot of us do that. Yeah, it's called code switching. And you change your speech patterns depending on who you're with. Right. And sometimes it's conscious and sometimes it's not conscious. So, you know, if I were to write the help, I would sound pretty tone deaf and ridiculous trying to you know, have my character speak in that dialogue because it's not something I'm fluent in. It's not something that comes naturally to me. And I think with dialogue, you have to really, it has to be in your pores, you know, you have Mm -hmm. to really 
be able to convey it without coming off as illegitimate. Did you get a sense that Catherine Stockett did not really do her homework and that she did not accurately portray this dialogue? I cringed when I read the dialogue. I just thought it came off as really ham-fisted and there was a college-educated black character who was forced to work as a maid, if I'm remembering correctly, in the book, and she didn't speak standard English and it stuck in my craw. I did not like it. But I will say that black English in the hands of white artists has always been a loaded issue. I mean, that's something that dates back to the early 30s, late 20s with a radio show called Amos and Andy. Mm -hmm. The original actors, the creators of Amos and Andy were two white men, Freeman Gaston and Charles Corral. They played these black characters with, you know, broad black dialect, and it really perpetuated stereotypes. So it's a trigger. Thanks so much, Teresa. Thank you for having me. All right, Mike, time for the lexiconundrum. What are we conundring this week? Last week, we talked about the phrase between you and I. And for the lexiconundrum, I noted that the Merriam-Webster's Usage Dictionary identifies two major categories of between you and I. One was the transactional, of which the Shakespeare line, all debts are cleared between you and I, is an example. And the other was the confidential, which indicates, you know, you're telling somebody something in confidence. I identified a third variety, what I call the differential, when you say stuff like the difference between you and I, and a fourth variety that I didn't have a name for. And this was when you say something like, between you and I, we've got it covered. Many people wrote in with suggestions for naming this particular variety of between you and I. A couple of people suggested naming it after Jack Spratt, because the rhyme goes, Jack Spratt could eat no fat, his wife could eat no lean, and so betwixt the two of them, they licked the platter clean. I really like that because betwixt the two of them exactly captures the idea that I'm trying to name here. But I don't really know how to turn Spratt into an adjective. Somebody suggested Spraddle, that was Nils Aspengrin, and another listener suggested Spratly. I don't really like either one of those. <laughs> If you could come up with something that seems to really work, then I might go for it. But barring that, there were two major categories of kind of naming words that people came up with. One was of the I-V-E suffixed variety, and the other was of the A-L suffixed variety. Uh, I'll read the I-V-E ones first, because we're kind of going for something that comports with differential and transactional and confidential. But, you know, maybe one of these will work. Expansive, inclusive, collaborative, cumulative, collective, and summative. So think about those. I'm going to let you choose the winner here, Bob. Then of the AL variety, we have enumerational, conspiratorial, reciprocal, contributional, communal, combinational, combinatorial, and compositional. And you could see that, like, all of these words are trying to capture the same sort of idea. Yeah, I think this is a no-brainer. I think this is collaborative. Really? Collaborative. Between you and I, what, what it means is between the two of us, which implies collaboration and uh, joining forces. And uh, there you go. I, I, I will brook no further discussion on the subject. <laughs> I can't make an argument for communal? 
Well, you know, then we're talking about sharing, uh, I think, more broadly. I think communal does seem to imply a larger group than just the two of us. I mean, if you add Jack Spratt, you know, and we've got a threesome, then we can talk. But other than that, it's just, uh, it's collaborative. Next. Okay. I just want to make a case for one more outlier, a word that didn't fit into either of those two categories. It was complementary. How does that work for you? Well, you know, complementary, that's interesting. It's reciprocal, it's uh, dovetailing, but I think it's sort of, I mean, literally close-ended, whereas collaborative is a much more open-ended way of looking at two people undertaking a given task. So uh, now I'm staying with my original answer. It's just like the SATs. Okay. Dave Wilton was the first person to suggest collaborative. So collaborative it is. And Kurt Pankow was the first to suggest yet a fifth category of Between You and I, one that I can't believe I overlooked. It's sort of the most obvious, the literal reading of Between You and I, which he calls mm-hmm. spatial, as in mm-hmm. there are a million miles between you and I. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, of mm-hmm. course, that's another one. All right, Mike, we've dispensed with last week. Now what have you got for this week's show? As a dog owner and a dog lover, uh, this week's lexiconundrum is dog-related. There are many dog breeds that have a kind of nickname that is a sort of shortened version of the official dog breed name. So, for example, Pekingese, you might call a Peak. Shetland Sheepdog, you might call a Sheltie. You have to come up with a dog breed nickname that is a homophone for a word that is a kind of regional humorous term for a type of hairdo. (laughs) (laughs) Well... That's that's uh, that's a lot to get my head around. A homophone is a word that sounds this, exactly the same as another word, but has an entirely different meaning. Different meaning, and in this case, different spelling. All right. Now, Mike, in the past, these have been open-ended, right? But in this case, there is one answer you're looking for. There is one answer that I know of. Okay, let's see if I have this right. It is the slang name of a certain hairstyle which also sounds exactly like the word, a shorthand word for a breed of dog. Yes. That's all you're giving me. Well, That's it. I could give you an additional hint. There is yet a third homophone that is the name of a town in, I won't tell you which state, but it's the southwest United States. Oh, this should, this should take nobody any time at all. Oh, but uh, not me because... <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to do something different. I'm just it's a gonna, triple I'm, homophone. I might just watch TV. I actually, I might just sit on my porch and smoke. And I'm not even a smoker. But did you hear me? It's a triple homophone. You're not listening. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, man. Wait, let's see if that does it for me. Wow, Bob, it's a triple homophone. You going to work on this puzzle? Uh, no. No? Okay. Well... If it does work for you, please send your ideas, comments, and answers to the Lexiconundrum to slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. You can find our episodes online at slate.com slash lexiconvalley. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. We would very much appreciate it. We're also starting to tweet intermittently at lexiconvalley. Thanks to Walter Wolfram of North Carolina State University and to Teresa Wiltz. And many thanks to Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcasts. Mikey, we done here. We're done. Later, Gator. Later.